welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be focused on the topic of technocracy. So this is wrapping up a series that I just did on secular religions. This would be statism and the Church of Woke, as well as scientism. And then I've talked about how these things are all in the background and part of the foundation of technocracy. They are all pointing in the same direction. Technocracy is the commonality that they all have as far as how they can achieve their goals, what direction they're headed to, and the tool that they are all using independently. This would be more of an oligarchy style where each one has independent goals and efforts, but they do come together for some common goals and efforts. So that's the idea of secular religions and leading that into technocracy. Last episode, I spent kind of the last half, really, reading quotes that were about technocracy somewhat, some explicitly, some not, and some tied directly into the previous concept of secular religion. And so that's where I left off, kind of introducing and teasing this concept of technocracy. And that's what I want to dive into more explicitly today. But I would like to start off with a bit more of reading because there is something that I've run across recently that seems very applicable and it ties in with some other things that other podcasters in our genre are discussing, other people on YouTube and various personalities, these types. There has been a decent bit of talk about having a more Machiavellian strategy using political means to achieve the goals of liberty. And so in looking into this idea, I wanted to get into the work of James Burnham and one of his books, at least the one that is often quoted from and has been touted a lot recently is The Machiavellians. And then there is another book that actually fits a little better with this podcast, and that would be the one prior. This would be The Managerial Revolution. And in The Managerial Revolution, he's talking about how society is moving towards being run from a managerial type of a system. And it's the experts that are becoming more and more powerful and have more and more influence. Basically, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about for a while on this show. So that's what piqued my interest. But in looking at both of these, I actually read one, but haven't read the other. I just got it in the other day, a physical copy at least. And so looking into these, I also ran across a book by George Orwell. So George Orwell, the author of Animal Farm in 1984, that definitely popped out to me. And the book is actually James Burnham and the Managerial Revolution, where George Orwell actually talks about and kind of reviews and critiques James Burnham and his writings. And he mentions both the book The Managerial Revolution, as well as the book The Machiavellians. And so I'll just go ahead and start off because this all ties into the same concepts we've been discussing, mainly that of technocracy. So let's start off with what Orwell has to say here. Quote, Capitalism is disappearing, but socialism is not replacing it. What is now arising is a new kind of planned, centralized society, which will be neither capitalist nor, in any accepted sense of the word, democratic. The rulers of this new society will be the people who effectively control the means of production. That is, business executives, technicians, bureaucrats, and soldiers, lumped together by Burnham under the name of, quote, managers. These people will eliminate the old capitalist class, crush the working class, and so organize society that all power and economic privilege remain in their own hands. Private property rights will be abolished, but common ownership will not be established. The new managerial societies will not consist of a patchwork of small independent states, but of great superstates grouped round the main industrial centers in Europe, Asia, and America. These superstates will fight among themselves for possession of the remaining uncaptured portions of the earth, but will probably be unable to conquer one another completely. Internally, 
each society will be hierarchical with an aristocracy of talent at the top and a mass of semi-slaves at the bottom. In his next published book, The Machiavellians, Burnham elaborates and also modifies his original statement. The greater part of the book is an exposition of the theories of Machiavelli and his modern disciples, Mosca, Michaels, and Pareto. With doubtful justification, Burnham adds to these the syndicalist writer George Sorrell. What Burnham is mainly concerned to show is that a democratic society has never existed, and, so far as we can see, never will exist. Society is of its nature oligarchical, and the power of the oligarchy always rests upon force and fraud. Burnham does not deny that, quote, good motives may operate in private life, but he maintains that politics consists of the struggle for power and nothing else. All historical changes finally boil down to the replacement of one ruling class by another. All talk about democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity, all revolutionary movements, all visions of utopia, or the classless society, or the kingdom of heaven on earth, are humbug, not necessarily conscious humbug, covering the ambitions of some new class which is elbowing its way into power. The English Puritans, the Jacobins, the Bolsheviks, were in each case simply power seekers using the hopes of the masses in order to win a privileged position for themselves. Power can sometimes be won or maintained without violence, but never without fraud, because it is necessary to make use of the masses, and the masses would not cooperate if they knew that they were simply serving the purposes of a minority— In each great revolutionary struggle, the masses are led by vague dreams of human brotherhood, and then, when the new ruling class is well-established in power, they are thrust back into servitude. This is practically the whole of political history as Burnham sees it. As I have said earlier, Burnham has probably been more right than wrong about the present and immediate past. For quite 50 years past, the general drift has almost certainly been towards oligarchy. The ever-increasing concentration of industrial and financial power, the diminishing importance of the individual capitalist or shareholder, and the growth of a new managerial class of scientists, technicians, and bureaucrats, the weakness of the proletariat against the centralized state— the increasing helplessness of small countries against big ones, the decay of representative institutions, and the appearance appearance of one-party regimes based on police terrorism, faked plebiscites, etc. All these things seem to point in the same direction. Burnham sees the trend and assumes that it is irresistible, rather as a rabbit fascinated by a boa constrictor might assume that a boa constrictor is the strongest thing in the world. When one looks a little deeper, one sees that all his ideas rest upon two axioms which are taken for granted in the earlier book and made partly explicit in the second one. They are... 1. Politics is essentially the same in all ages. 2. Political behavior is different from other kinds of behavior. To take the second point first, in the Machiavellians, Burnham insists that politics is simply the struggle for power. Every great social movement, every war, every revolution, every political program, however edifying and utopian, really has behind it the ambitions of some sectional group which is out to grab power for itself. Power can never be restrained by any ethical or religious code, but only by other power. The nearest possible approach to altruistic behavior is the perception by a ruling group that it will probably stay in power longer if it behaves decently. But curiously enough, these generalizations only apply to political behavior, not to any other kind of behavior. In everyday life, as Burnham sees and admits, one cannot explain every human action by applying the principle of cubono. Obviously, human beings have impulses which are not selfish, 
Man, therefore, is an animal that can act morally when he acts as an individual, but becomes immoral when he acts collectively. But even this generalization only holds good for the higher groups. The masses, it seems, have vague aspirations towards liberty and human brotherhood, which are easily played upon by the power-hungry individuals or minorities. So that history consists of a series of swindles in which the masses are first lured into revolt by the promise of utopia, and then, when they have done their job, enslaved over again by new masters. Political activity, therefore, is a special kind of behavior characterized by its complete unscrupulousness and occurring only among small groups of the population, especially among dissatisfied groups whose talents do not get free play under the existing form of society. The great mass of the people, and this is where number two ties with number one, will always be unpolitical. In effect, therefore, humanity is divided into two classes, the self-seeking, hypocritical minority and the brainless mob whose destiny is always to be led or driven, as one gets a pig back to the sty by kicking it on the bottom or by rattling a stick inside a swill bucket according to the needs of the moment. And this beautiful pattern is to continue forever. Individuals may pass from one category to another, whole classes may destroy other classes and rise to the dominant position, but the division of humanity into rulers and ruled is unalterable. In their capabilities, as in their desires and needs, men are not equal. There is an iron law of oligarchy, which would operate even if democracy were not impossible for mechanical reasons. And that is the end of that long section I wanted to read. I think that it does show a lot of what I have been discussing, both when summarizing the views of Burnham and also when criticizing some of his other views and points. And so and I also believe that George Orwell is a very good person to get some critique from, especially since I will be using his book 1984 in a future episode on uh, comparisons to technocracy and possible future things, that kind of stuff. And so I figured that was uh, pretty apropos given that's what's coming up. Now, there were a few very interesting things that were called out here. Number one, he basically says that we're heading towards technocracy, uh, a system ruled by experts focused on controlling the means of production and resources. It's an oligarchy that was brought up a lot, and that's something I've talked about a lot, that we currently operate under an oligarchy. And he actually argues that an oligarchy is always the uh, power behind the scenes, that democracy is just a falsehood, as are other political systems, and that there's always some sort of oligarchical minority that's in an elite position behind the society in question. And so this also goes along with a lot of what I have said, talks about the managerial class of scientists, technicians, and bureaucrats. That's uh, exactly what I have been talking about related to technocracy. And he gets into this uh, division of people between being the ruled and the rulers. And this is kind of similar to something from Agorist class theory. So if you have the version of the New Libertarian Manifesto by Edward Konkin, then there is a section, at least if you have this version, there is a section at the end, an add-on called Agorist Class Theory. And in that, humanity is basically broken up into a group that operates in conjunction with the state and in the state system, and then a group that is agorist in nature and operates outside of and apart from that state system. And then there are some people in the middle that are kind of mixed, but uh, he says that, in his opinion, those people will have to choose and eventually will be drawn to one side or the other. So you eventually have the state and everyone that operates under that system and the agorists and everybody that operates in the free voluntary market. And those are the two options. 
And so um, this is a common technique to divide humanity into just a few groups. And oftentimes they are correct, but that doesn't make them mutually exclusive. So while I would agree that you have the ruled and the rulers, I think there are many other ways to divide up humanity. And uh, yeah, that's all we can say about that. So Moving on to the next set of quotes, there's only two more, I guess technically three, but they're all from the same person. So I'll just read them all in a row. And this this comes from uh, Sorokin, Ptiram Sorokin. He is the Russian sociologist that I've mentioned quite a few times on the show. And this comes from his book, Social and Cultural Dynamics. And I'll go ahead and start at the beginning of the first quote. Quote, the organism of the Western society and culture seems to be undergoing one of the deepest and most significant crises of its life. The crisis is far greater than the ordinary. Its depth is unfathomable, its end not yet in sight, and the whole of Western society is involved in it. It is the crisis of a sensate culture, now in its overripe stage, the culture that has dominated the Western world during the last five centuries. Shall we say, therefore, that if many do not apprehend clearly what is happening, they have at least a vague feeling that the issue is not merely that of prosperity, or democracy, or capitalism, or the like, but involves the whole contemporary culture, society, and man? Shall we wonder also at the endless multitude of incessant major and minor crises that have been rolling over us like ocean waves during recent decades, today in one form, tomorrow in another, now here, now there, crises political, agricultural, commercial, and industrial, crises of production and distribution, crises moral, juridical, religious, scientific, and artistic, crises of poverty, of the state, of the family, of industrial enterprise. Each of these crises has battered our nerves and minds. Each has shaken the very foundations of our culture and society. And each has left behind a legion of derelicts and victims. And alas, the end is not in view. Each of these crises has been, as it were, a movement in a great terrifying symphony, and each has been remarkable for its magnitude and intensity. In all failing societies, respect for obligation and family declines along with compassion for one's fellows to be replaced for preoccupation for amusement, diversion, and predation. And if you couldn't tell, that very last bit was a separate quote from a different context. I should have clarified that. But it's interesting the way Sorokin is laying out what is going on and how society is devolving, this crisis that's building and building through all these independent crises that keep happening. And he says the end is not in sight. So when he's writing this, I can't remember exactly when it was he was writing this. I believe it was the 40s, but I'm not sure. Either way, it was somewhere around there. But he's talking about all these things that are happening that he sees, but he doesn't see an end in sight. So he was definitely correct about that. He was also correct about this assessment of it being kind of the dying throes of a sensate culture. He was seeing that it had become overripe. And I've talked a lot about that in previous episodes about these cultural shifts that are happening, societal shifts and historical patterns. I use Sorokin quite a bit when discussing these things. But the interesting part is not only that he sees that that is where we are in the cycle, But he's also calling out that it's not quite the time yet for this culture to flip, to go into something else, for the crises to be at their peak. They're rising. It's a great crescendo. It's a symphony. But it's not done yet. He didn't even see the end of it. He saw that it would continue and continue, and it has. So I would argue that we are still in that And we are probably coming to the end of that. I am recording this uh, two years into the COVID-19 pandemic. And so with that comes a lot of baggage. And there is definitely a possibility that this is part of this ending crisis. Like all of these crises have come together 
to manifest in one great big bang. And that, as of this recording, I do not believe has happened yet, but the stage is completely set for it. And it's set on so many different levels, whether it be the woke culture, or whether it be the centralized supply chains, or whether it be the monetary policy of printing money like crazy out of nowhere and handing it away to people. All of these things are setting us up for a large crash. And that is probably, at least according to my estimation and looking at the fourth turning cycles and some other frameworks, it seems that there is going to be one more big event. It might be a war. It might be an economic war. It might just be a depression. It's going to be something. And when that happens, it will be big and it will have a big impact. And that will likely be the sign of the sensate age officially coming to an end and shifting into the ideational age. And so with Sorokin, those are the two ages that you switch between. Right now, we're somewhere in the middle. And uh, as he called out, we're kind of in the dying throes of the sensate culture. And that is uh, where we are headed. And we're very close to that as I am recording now. Whereas when Sorokin was writing, he didn't really even see the end of it. So that's kind of interesting that as time goes on, we can look back and see that he was really right about most of these things that he discusses. There's also a tie between what Sorokin says in that final quote and what Orwell was discussing. And he talks about how respect for obligation and family declines along with compassion for one's fellows, and that these are replaced with preoccupation for amusement, diversion, and predation. And so this touches on kind of Orwell's division of classes between the ruled and the rulers and talking about the characteristics of the masses. And the masses are the ones that have replaced respect for obligation and family and basically order. They've replaced that with amusement and diversion. And he says predation as well, but that would be, I would say, secondary in the class of the masses. And then among the elite, those that are in more influential and ruling positions, I would say predation is probably at the top of the list. And amusement and diversion are also very high on that list. And so he sees that this is the situation that exists in all failing societies, and that is what is going on. And it's a cultural shift. That's something that I'm probably going to be getting into. I guess it's going to have to be after talking about technocracy and many episodes from now, but talking about the the difference between politics and culture and how there are different forms of power. And power is something that is manifested in many different ways. And even within politic- politics, it's, it's manifested in different ways, as well as within culture or religion or a narrative, it's manifested in different ways. But my argument is that the power that lies in culture and narrative and religion is much stronger than the power that lies in politics and law and institutions. Although they are both power and they both can be used and are used, I would argue that one is greater than the other. And so not only do we call out the failings within the political system, but if you also start seeing the failings within the culture, within religious movements within the narrative and all of the holes in the narrative and the corrupt and the inverse narrative that we are getting right now, inverse from logic and reason and morality and all kinds of stuff. And we see that. And according to my argument, those issues are actually more important than the political. And so if we're seeing them both kind of crumble in front of our eyes, then I would probably be totally on board with Sorokin uh, calling out that we are in the middle of a failing society and the death throes of the sensate culture and headed for a final crisis. So, you know, it's not really butterflies and rainbows, but that is just where we are. And if we can accept where we are and where we're headed, then we can move on from there. We can do something about it. We can prepare for it. And uh, that actually might be the next season of this podcast, but we will see and I will quit teasing future things. So instead, 
let's get into discussing more about technocracy, especially in relation to all of these quotes that I had read in the previous episode, as well as these ones I opened with in this episode. So basically, even according to normies in society that are not aware of all of the -the behind-the-scenes things that happens, it's still no secret that our society is just as much controlled by power players behind the scenes and the corporate world as it is by the state. It's likely that as we shift into a more technocratic, scientific age, that this power dynamic will have some shifts in balance. With the Reformation, The church gave much ground to the nobility with the final effect of having a new nation-state model that was mostly run by nobility with lesser religious influence than before. And it's likely that the current state will give much ground to the power players behind the scenes, as it seems has already happened, with the result of the new technocracy model being run mostly by this expert class with lesser political influence than before. So it would make more sense if you could see it on paper like I can, but um, these things are contrasted and they are in parallel with one another. And so um, if you want more on that, then listen to the last season of my podcast, season two. It's all about the comparison of the Reformation, so I will not belabor that point. But it um, is just another way of looking at things here. So there's also the pattern of societies shifting from material to immaterial and back again. And this is something I've also talked about a lot, so I won't get into too much. But it's been thoroughly explored by people like Sarkar, by Hindu theology, uh, Sorokin, Vinarmani, and many other people like this. You've also got the cyclical aspects of history that have been covered by many people as well, such as Neil Howe, William Strauss, Jared Diamond, Joseph Tainter, Joseph Campbell, Theodore Kaczynski, and again, many others. Our current society is shifting into a more immaterial or ideational age. The previous age had high amounts of materialism, facts, logic, individualism, and this was the sensate culture that Sorokin was talking about and pointing out. The age of science, which is the age we're heading into or are currently in, will focus more heavily on ideals, narratives, collectivism, subtle controls, and this will all be done with more of a rhizomatic approach if you are looking from a Deleuze perspective here, the rhizomatic versus arborescent. Again, talked plenty about that in other episodes. Won't get into it more here. But we have shifted from mostly physical incentives to mostly economic incentives. Again, from material to immaterial. We are now shifting from mostly economic incentives to more psychological incentives. So again, we went from the material to partially immaterial with economic. It's a blend. Economics is a blend of the material and immaterial. Physical goods with money and finance and trade and stocks and bonds and all of these things. It's it's the immaterial mixed with the material. And now we're shifting into these incentives and many other structures that are psychological in nature. And this is something totally immaterial. So this is kind of what's happening with going from state pressure to social pressure. These are all concepts that, again, I've talked about at length, at lots of length in previous episodes, especially that interim period, including the Vin Armani interview and elaboration episodes and the following episodes, a lot about this stuff. So I, again, won't get into that too much. But this is just to go over some of the... I guess the foundation for what's happening, it's not just corruption and conspiracy behind the scenes, but you also have these patterns that societies go through. You also have cyclical aspects to history. You also have this issue of the society that we are currently in shifting to something else, of having these crises that are occurring now, and there will be a reaction to them. You have that framework of problem-reaction-solution playing out on a macro scale. 
all of these things are occurring in addition to there being power players behind the scenes with a lot of influence steering things and steering whole societies and populations. All of these things are happening. It's And they're not mutually exclusive. Again, it's kind of like classifying humanity. You can do it in many different ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one is not true and the other is or that they're both not true, they could both be true. And all of these views of society and what's going on in modern history, they are all true. And so uh, the other benefit to this is if we see that all of these different things, and I would argue that they all are pointing to truth, if they are all pointing to the same truth, then that gives a lot more weight to that truth itself. If it was just backed up by one thing, then well, that's one thing. But if it's backed up by four or five different very sound theories and frameworks and a lot of work going back for decades or even centuries, depending on what you're looking at, then that lends it a lot more credence. And that's what we have here. This uh, concept of shifting into technocracy is backed up by so many more things. And so it should be given a lot of credence here. And that is why I'm spending so much time talking about it. I've talked about it a lot in the past, and I'm spending a good deal of time talking about it now. And if you want even more information, the source I would recommend would be Patrick Wood. He's done a lot of work on technocracy. He's got a few books. Uh, technocracy Rising is one, and... I forget the other one. Technocracy, the Trojan horse to the New World Order. I know that's not it, but it's something like that. Um, there's the hard road to the New World Order, I think is one. Uh, I don't know. You can look it up. Patrick Wood. He's done a lot of interviews as well. So you can find those on YouTube or a podcast player. Been on a lot of shows. And he specifically and almost solely talks about technocracy. Now, I will, I guess this brings up something to mind here, where as I was looking into technocracy and kind of refreshing myself on the subject, because I haven't really uh, dove into that any time recently, it's been probably a year or two since I've done in-depth study into the concept of technocracy. So I went back and listened to quite a few Patrick Wood interviews. That was my kind of go-to for that. I'd listened to a lot of other stuff previously, but I thought that he would be a very good source, and he was. And there was an interesting thing that he mentioned in one of the interviews that I listened to, and it's one that he had recorded. It was post-COVID, so probably within the past few months or so. I think it was about six months old um, as of when I listened to it, which was just a few weeks ago. And he brings up the idea of transhumanism. And transhumanism is something that I have also mentioned before, and I mentioned that as a sect of these um, these secular religions that I've been discussing. And the way Patrick Wood was speaking of it, it seemed like it was kind of off the cuff, and he specifically said that he hasn't really developed the idea fully yet. But what he said was that originally he felt like technocracy was the end game, and technocracy was the end-all be-all. It was the main thing. And that transhumanism was something kind of in the background of that. And that he is now leaning more towards and shifting more towards the idea that transhumanism is the main thing. That is the end game. That's the end goal. And technocracy is something that is more in the background. It's a tool to get there, so to say. And I thought that was very interesting and I, I think fairly true, actually. Uh, transhumanism is basically just the modern eugenics movement. That's basically what it is. It is improving the human race. They're just doing it through technology now, both biological and technological, whereas in the past, they mainly just did it through breeding and genocide and things of this nature. And so uh, I, I do see that what he's calling out does have a lot of merit. And the one thing that I guess I would say about it would be that you have a, a more explicit 
religious movement going on today in the form of wokeism. And that is something that is much more prominent than transhumanism. Transhumanism is still fairly small, even if most of the elites at the top behind the scenes, these power players, uh, are more oriented towards transhumanism. The majority of people, the masses, as well as many of the politicians and people in the corporate world, uh, the bulk of humanity, is uh, much more likely to be influenced by the Church of Woke than by the transhumanist movement. And my... I guess something that I've also been thinking of lately have not fully developed and we'll speak of off the cuff here would be that I see the Church of Woke being a movement that burns bright and quickly and is gone. I think that it is not a permanent deal. I think that it will not have the lasting power of something like statism or scientism. And I believe that it will basically eat itself. It's kind of like the revolutions in Russia, where you had these uh, revolutionaries that had an ideology, and they took power, and then you had more extreme revolutionaries, and uh, they wiped out the previous revolutionaries and took power themselves. And this happened kind of a few times in different ways. And then you finally end up with the Soviet Union, which is uh, actually not too distant from a technocracy. It's all about resource management and allocation. Uh, that's kind of the deal with communism as well. There is not a big separation between communism and fascism, and technocracy is kind of in the middle of those things for many reasons that I guess I won't get into here. But my original point where I was trying to go with this was that you had a revolution in Russia that basically devoured itself by what it spawned and turned into this new thing. And uh, most would argue that the new thing was kind of the goal all along. And uh, that's kind of what I see happening now, where the Church of Woke burns through society, it makes these cultural shifts, and it sucks a lot of people in. It gets more and more extreme to the point where people that used to be considered left-wing feminists are now being totally canceled because they weren't extreme enough in their feminism, and they didn't broaden their categories to trans people, and you know, so on and so forth. Uh, basically, the revolution is then getting eaten by itself, by its more extreme version. That might happen one or two times, and as that trend continues, it eventually dies out. And what is left is something that is similar, I would say. I would not say that it's uh, totally different or the opposite. It's, It's similar, but it is a different thing. It's a more systematic thing. It's something that many would argue was kind of the goal all along. And with this, I could see that transhumanism might be that thing. Because when you look at wokeism, this idea of the woke theology, it's that everyone is equal and we celebrate everyone's differences. I guess we go back to 2 plus 2 equals 5, or we will get to that in the future when we talk about 1984. But it's something where you want to highlight the commoner, and the age of science should be the age of the commoner. So that is true, and it's about all humanity uniting together uh, under love and peace and being accepting of all views and all beliefs and being conscious of the environment and our impact on that and all of these different things. And then if you compare that to something like transhumanism, where transhumanism focuses on the human species writ large, the macro view of all humanity, similar to how wokeism does, and it wants to improve humanity. It wants to uh, make everyone better. And this is even extended down to the common person. We all will be better. We will live longer. We will be able to do more. That is the transhumanist dream. And it reaches down again into the realm of the commoner. And 
uh, everyone has different beliefs and different goals and different value systems. But for transhumanism, it's not an explicit religion. And so you're allowed to have those different views. They might even be celebrated that maybe you want to tweak your humanity in one way and someone else wants to tweak their humanity in a different way. And that's fine. We are going to celebrate that and we are going to be able to do it because that's what transhumanism is. It's moving beyond being human. It's that next step in human evolution. And so you can see, again, the traces of the woke theology in transhumanism itself. But transhumanism is something that actually does have a lot more lasting power, whereas wokeism, I do not believe, will be what takes over long term. The more what I see as far as a timeline is concerned is that wokeism sets up everything to fail pretty much. So we have money getting printed like crazy out of nowhere, handed out to people at the bottom, so to say, but in reality, bailing out a bunch of giant corporations and lining their pockets. And either way, it's money getting printed like crazy in the trillions. Then at the same time, you're canceling such large swaths of the population, censoring them. You're censoring what they can see. You're censoring what they can say. You are changing the narrative so obviously that you are uh, basically just outright saying two plus two equals five. And it's, it's not even a joke. It's not even hidden. There are headlines that specifically say that, for example, I saw one the other day that it was out of the BBC, kind of mainstream publication, and it was that three quarters of all hospitalized patients from COVID were vaccinated. And uh, the point that they then drew out of that, the very next line, was talking about how everyone needs to go get vaccinated because of this, because uh, there was one-fourth of people that were hospitalized that were not vaccinated. Therefore, everyone go get your vaccine. And it's like, well, we can do basic math. We, we see that three-fourths were vaccinated. So if 75% were and were still hospitalized and only 25% were hospitalized that weren't, Especially when you look at the ratios of the whole population, the vaccine rates um, among that population of, I would assume, the UK, then the, the numbers don't really add up very well. That That is not a very convincing argument. If it convinced me, it convinced me of the opposite thing that you are trying to tell me, the opposite of the story you are telling, the opposite of your narrative. And again, the narrative is a joke now. Uh, the mainstream media is a joke. It's an outright joke. You have the Let's Go Brandon thing that happened a while ago where uh, you had a NASCAR race and people started chanting in the background, F Joe Biden. And it was F Joe Biden, do, 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 F Joe Biden. And that was, you know, getting yelled across the entire stadium. And there's a reporter interviewing a driver and um, she kind of stops and looks back and says, well, you know, isn't this isn't this wonderful and crazy? The the whole crowd is cheering, let's go, Brandon, and just continues on as if, you know, we can't actually hear what's going on in the background because everybody can. It's a joke. All of this is a joke. And all of this does none of this has lasting power. It will all crumble. And as we know, the pendulum swings both ways. And one is a reaction to the other. It's the momentum from the swing far to the left that pushes it not just down to the middle, but all the way back over to the right. And that's what I see happening where the woke theology is so extreme that it crumbles under its own weight. A society, an economy cannot handle what the woke church is doing. It cannot handle it. It will not handle it. Maybe short term, very short term, but it will not last a decade. And it will likely not last more than a few years. And so, as the pendulum swings back the other way, as it always does, then the worry, and uh, I guess some would say the hope, I don't really know if it's good or bad, but it, it is likely that we shift over to more right-wing, um, let's say, authoritarianism. So, kind of a Trump figure that is maybe more 
uh, I hate to say it, but maybe intelligent. <laughs> I don't know how else to word that. Uh, but someone like Trump that is just uh, better at what they do. And so if you get someone like that, that is the figure that people can really get behind, that is not as divisive, that can actually do something with their power and do a lot with the power that they gain and use it in a very authoritarian way. And that will be the reaction in the opposite direction. And what is uh, the shift going to be from an economic perspective? Well, that's the whole idea of the Great Reset. I've talked about that in previous episodes as well. Um, in order to have a Great Reset and to, uh, what's the other quote that they use a lot, to build back better. That was one of Biden's campaign slogans. Well, in order to do that, the old system has to fail. It has to crumble. It has to be gone. And once the old system fails, then you build back better. That is the Great Reset. And that is what happens as the effects and the consequences of the Church of Woke play out on a societal level. Then we shift into more of a focus on the private sphere and a larger focus on public-private partnerships. And this has been building for a few decades now. This is not anything new. Foundations, large corporations, these types of groups are getting more and more power, and it is going to shift vastly more in their favor as this Great Reset occurs. We are going to shift into more of, well, we're going to shift into a digital currency. Now, whether that's statewide or continent-wide or worldwide, I, I really don't know. No one does. But we are going to shift into something that is uh, digital. This is something that will be run partially by the corporate realm, and it will be something that will be easier to track, to trace, to monitor, making use of the latest technologies such as blockchain, but not a decentralized blockchain. Of course not. It will be centralized blockchain, the opposite, basically the nightmare of the original uh, blockchain proponents. And so this is what's occurring. And you can see how the right wing is more likely to do this. The push away from the left is likely to do this. Even people that were on the left that got canceled because wokeism got so extreme. Well, what about all of those Bernie Sanders supporters? He should have gotten the nomination instead of Hillary Clinton in 2016. And uh, that actually reminds me of one more thing I'll talk about in just a second. But um, Bernie Sanders was very big on talking about the corruption of the corporate world and how this was one of the most important things in our modern day society. Well, what about all of his supporters? Did they just disappear? No, they're still there. What about all the anti-establishment Trump folks that were very big on all of that rhetoric and that narrative? Are they gone? No, of course not. And so all of this gets channeled into a mix of the right wing, kind of the alt-right authoritarian wing, and the private sector. So instead of dealing with these corrupt politicians, uh, let's focus a little more on the private sector. And instead of having massive corporations totally in bed with the state, well, let's separate the two and give a lot more completely to the private sector and have that be separate from the political sector, from the government. We're going to separate the two to get away from some of this corruption like Bernie Sanders called out a lot of. And so we've got all of these things going on or that will be going on. And that's what I foresee as coming up. And the end result is that we end up with something much more akin to, or we end up with itself, technocracy. And that is the rule of these experts. This is mostly um, a society that is run by the private sector. It is much more objective. It fits in line with the transhumanist goals. It is something that does not totally eliminate the state. There's still plenty of room for the state, but it plays a much smaller role in society. And so I guess that's what I see coming up. I see that that is where we are headed. And it's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily bad. It just is what it is. And the thing that uh, I got reminded of when I mentioned Bernie Sanders would be something kind of totally 
separate, but it, it does relate here. So uh, we bring up the issue with what I just said of, well, what do we do about it? If we can see that this is where things are headed, we should probably do something. And I've talked a lot about agorism. That's a that's a definitely a very good route to go. And there are many other routes to go. But there is another one that has more recently been brought to my attention, and that would be PMAs or private membership associations. And uh, so in the debacle with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders sued the, I believe it was the DNC, for basically cheating him out of the nomination. And the judge proceeded to throw out the case because the DNC is a PMA. It's a private membership association, and it cannot be sued. And so that is how Bernie Sanders was not able to get any sort of justice from what happened to him in the law courts. And so uh, this idea of a PMA, it's something that the Boy Scouts use. The Boy Scouts are structured as a PMA. There are a lot of places that sell alcohol in dry counties, which would be counties in the U.S. that are not allowed to serve alcohol. There are places that still do and do so legally because they are structured as a PMA. There are lots of other examples here of PMAs. But the whole deal is that you are shifting all activity from the public sector to the private sector. And especially according to the Constitution is what this usually rests on, as well as uh, quite a few Supreme Court cases that have been held up over and over again over the decades. But there is this precedent that what is done in private cannot be infringed on by the state. The state cannot come in between uh, two parties that are engaged in a private contract. And the, oh, well, there is an exception, unless there is substantial evil that is occurring. And substantial evil might sound very objective or subjective, I should say, but it's actually more objective than it sounds because this has been debated and discussed in multiple Supreme, Supreme Court cases. And so there actually is a, a fairly... Uh, laid out and clear definition of what substantial evil is. And so they can't really be uh, totally misconstrued, at least not easily. And so uh, basically what you end up with is you have this uh, private membership association, this PMA. It operates kind of like a business. It is an entity in and of itself. And everything that happens within it is completely private. So it, it's, it cannot be infringed upon by the state. Uh, there are no regulations that apply there. There are no restrictions that apply there. If there's a mask mandate in your county, it doesn't matter within your private sphere. The example that I've heard a lot would be, what if you had friends over for dinner? Um, would you uh, seek out a license to serve them alcohol when you serve dinner? Or would you just serve a glass of wine if they want one? Well, what if another group of friends come over and they had just bought a few bottles of some kind of liquor that you really like? And you say, hey, can I buy, buy one of those bottles of liquor from you? And guy says, yeah, sure, here. And you buy, let's say, a bottle of whiskey from him because it's one that you really like. But is your friend going to have a liquor license? or whatever license you need to sell alcohol. Well, no, that's ridiculous. You can sell that bottle of alcohol within your home in a private setting between two private individuals. That is not something that is regulated. And this is then extended to this entity of a PMA where you can have an actual business that is not operating in the public sphere, but rather the private sphere. And in doing so, your business can operate however it sees fit. The catch, if there is one, is that anybody that participates with this business has to be a member of the PMA. And in doing so, they are entering the private sphere, and that is how everything can still be classified as occurring within the private sphere and outside of any public regulation. And so this is something that uh, me and the local group I'm a part of, at least one of them, is looking into more thoroughly, and it's something that uh, might 
uh, be something that we pursue in the future. There is a lot to it. You have to be very careful how you write and frame your founding documents. And there are some stipulations. And there are some difficulties in dealing with things like the banking system. You technically need a, a tax ID number. And to get that, it's a little complicated and lots of other things. So don't just run out and try to do this on your own. Definitely do plenty of research if that's something you're interested in. But since it is relevant to solutions, um, I figured I'd mention that and and just because Bernie Sanders reminded me. So uh, that's something I've been looking into more recently. And as I, I mentioned earlier in the episode, that next season might be more solutions focused. Uh, this is one of those solutions possibly. I am not sure yet because I have not set one up yet. I have not gotten that far. But if I do end up setting one up, or if someone in any of the groups I'm associated with decides to set one up, and if we get some more structure behind some of these other solution-oriented groups and activities that I am aware of, then these might be the focus of a future season, possibly the next season, possibly the one after that And so that's something that I wanted to at least get out there. If that's something that might be helpful to you or to someone you know, then look into it. Look into PMAs. There are plenty of YouTube videos and podcast interviews and other resources. It's not extremely widely known, but it is out there and it's not anything that's necessarily new. It's a very old structure Uh, at least in consideration of how old the country is, when you go all the way back to the Constitution, that's pretty old. But it is something that is having a... Um, a new revival of sorts that more and more people are looking into it now, especially given all the regulations and restrictions that have come into play post-COVID. And so that is really spurring a lot more interest in this movement. But since this episode and this season has really nothing to do with PMAs, I will stop there. Check it out. If you're interested, there's also PEAs, uh, private education associations. So that's an alternative to private school or even an umbrella school for homeschooling. You basically bring in the PMA structure into an education environment. And there are even health ones. You have PHAs, I believe, private health associations, if I remember right. And it's just as you would imagine. So uh, getting back to technocracy, though, uh, this will wrap up this episode on technocracy. And next time I will get into into uh, the next bit of this. And what I'll be getting into will be talking about some possible frameworks for what this technocracy is going to look like. So if hopefully I have made a very good argument that technocracy is coming, that is where we are headed by many, many different things that point to this. And I've pointed out some of these secular religions behind the scenes and how those are influencing this shift to technocracy. And so now I want to go into what does this technocracy look like and what I'm going to do. And I've done previous episodes where I mentioned this uh, as well. So some of it might be slightly repetitive, but I am going to try to not be repetitive. I'm trying to bring out new things and present it in a new way and go more in depth this go around where I actually get into all of the things. But basically, I'm going to look at different illusions that are illustrative of the uh, idea of technocracy and how we will likely be entering into it. And so the illusions that I will be alluding to will be Machiavelli's The Prince, George Orwell's 1984, the concept of Panopticon, which would originally go to Jeremy Bentham and then later was expanded on by Foucault and Plato's Philosopher Kings from Republic that I've also discussed before. You've got Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and the Foundation Universe by Isaac Asimov. These are all illusions that I will be diving into, doing some comparisons, some parallels, uh, what's going on today, what's coming, and how all of this comes into play. These are all very good options for, uh, I guess, very good lenses for viewing technocracy through. They point to different aspects that 
are happening and will happen. And they're also kind of fun because you can read these books. Many of you probably already have. You'll get a lot of these references and you can see how they are pointing out real things. That's a wonderful thing about sci-fi is that oftentimes, at least with good sci-fi, it is completely fictional as well as uh, close to a documentary of the future. And so you can have both of those things be true. And these are some examples where they are. So that's what we'll start off doing in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate all of the support, especially the financial supporters, as well as people that have given feedback and ratings and reviews and all of that wonderful stuff. Thank you for that. Please continue to do these things. Please continue to listen. Thank you for listening. And I am out of here. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.